Welcome to the Better Questions podcast. In this week, we are releasing part two of our conversation with Dr. Chris Keith. So if you didn't listen to part one, you should go ahead and do that. Otherwise, part two is not going to make a whole lot of sense to you. But in this two-part episode, we've been addressing the question, are the Gospels historically accurate? And so in part one, we spent a lot of time talking about why is that maybe not the most helpful question? And here in part two, we're going to start getting more into how then should we view the Gospels and how should we read the Gospels? So here's the conclusion to our conversation with Dr. Chris Keith. How, how is that supposed to impact the way that we read the Gospels when we come together as a faith community to read them? Well, I think one thing is to say that I don't, despite what I just said, I don't think it's illegitimate to ask historical questions. I've written several books about that ask and try to answer historical questions. But I think that the starting point is not, did this or did this not happen? The starting point is saying, <clears throat> why might they have thought this? And if you start there, then you have to start speculating in the best way possible, using your historical imagination, the various reasons they might have thought these things. Um, and, and, you know, working through those proposed scenarios is how you can actually start making historical decisions. And there's no template to, to proving that something did or didn't happen. And like I said earlier, I, don't, I think there's a, a, an awful lot in the Gospels that we can't possibly hope to get, an, get answers to. You know? And then there are other things. I use the example of the Mathean zombies, which I don't think that really ever happened in real life, and I don't know any Gospel scholars who do. But the the but if you're playing the zero sum game, then what you say is that tells us nothing about the historical Jesus. And I think that I completely reject that idea, because what it tells us is that already in the first century, whoever Matthew or whoever Matthew was thought Jesus was, they thought that he kickstarted the resurrection in some way that led to the resurrection of other people, and whether anybody accepts the resurrection or the claim of those restricted resurrections to be historically accurate, the very fact that they thought that, they claimed it, is a historical piece of evidence that we can investigate. Because mm. we can say, well, why did they think that? And for me, part of the reason is, part of the reason is they probably believed in Jesus' resurrection, but they also believed that he was the promised Messiah who was going to kickstart the end times. And, and and so then you start asking, well, okay, well, why did they think that? All right, and that can that, and then you can actually start answering questions about, well, what would have made them thought that? So I would come out the end of the other end of that process saying, no, I don't actually think that people came up out of tombs at Jesus' crucifixion and were seen walking around Jerusalem, and we have one person who attests to that, one historical source about it. 
I mean, if that actually happened, then we'd have a lot more about that. But I do think the fact that they claim it tells us a whole lot about who they thought Jesus was. Right? Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So in other words, instead of, you know, the, the traditional scholarly thing is to take that piece of tradition and just throw it out. Like, oh, well, that's just early Christian belief. But all we have is early Christian belief. It's not like we have something right. else. That's what we have. So the question isn't, well, is this early Christian belief? The answer to that question is easy. It's, it is. The question is, why did they believe that instead of believing something else? I mean, Dale Al- uh, there's a historical Jesus scholar named Dale Allison. It's got a fantastic piece on the Nathan zombies. And, and uh, he articulates in, much, in a much better way what I kind of just said now. The fact that it didn't happen doesn't mean it tells us nothing historically. It tells us a lot historically. Right. And uh, I have a, a follow-up question that's probably rather simple, but to get to it, I want to give a specific example. Um, because recently I've, I've had a couple conversations with people that headed this direction, and I've tried to communicate that, well, you know, there's certain events in the gospel specifically, and really in all of Scripture, that I kind of have said to them that I don't really think it matters ultimately whether or not it really happened because I see all this depth in, uh, you know, seeing it from a different angle. For instance, when in Matthew it talks about um, there being like a bounty on all of the baby's heads, which is kind of a nod to Exodus, the Exodus story. So where do they flee to? Well, they flee to Egypt and then Jesus comes back from Egypt to uh, Israel and to uh, Nazareth. And when I show that to people, I go, well, doesn't that really make sense that if Matthew's purpose is to write to the Jews, that he would give Jesus an experience that mirrors what the Israelite people went through um, in the Exodus story? And when they see that, they're not really as mind-blown as I was when I first discover that they're more just hung up on the fact that I'm saying that maybe that didn't really happen. And so my simple question is, how do we have better conversations with people that, you know, these kind of ideas are like, that are perceived as threats to their whole worldview, their whole biblical view. And how, how can we approach that with people um, in a grace-filled way that where we both we end up leaving still friends and still mutual respect. And, you know, can you speak to that a little bit? <laughs> I can speak to what it looks like when it all blows up. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I mean, in reality, from that experience, I don't know if, if Chris told you. And I mean, I carry, I carry deep wounds from that whole experience uh, because I felt very... Um, mischaracterized and all that and when i walked away from that table i certainly uh didn't feel like i'd been dealt with and my colleague had not been dealt with in a grace-filled way Mm. um it's there's it's a multifaceted answer to your question um one is i think that i think that for the people who get it you have to deal with people who don't in a pastoral way and a lot of times we think we're just going to open this truth bomb and drop it on them, and all of a sudden they're going to see it. And usually that's not actually what's happening. Usually, the, you know, they've been raised often to believe 
that this is the only thing that matters is whether XYZ thing really happened. And right. so for them, they're not actually making a decision about whether Jesus really went down to Egypt or not. They're making a decision about whether they're going to fit in their family anymore, they're going to fit in their faith community anymore, whether they're going to be viewed as a heretic for saying this thing. Um, and so one of the things to say is, you know, hey, look, it's okay. It's all right. You know, there, there, there are many people who have thought these things throughout the, the, the long history of following Jesus, and we, they knew these things a long, long time ago. Origen, Augustine are making are talking about what we would call historical Jesus issues in the third century and the fourth century. Th- these these questions are oh, I mean, if, if I'm right about the Gospel of John, he's he's having this conversation at the end of the first century, you know. Uh, so this whole idea of asking these questions is part of the history of the church. It's not some you know counter off you know the, the by which you undermine it. It's part of it. Um. The other, the other thing is that um, I think that people a lot of times, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of times they're not responding to what we would call facts. They're responding to people's personalities, their own and the person that they're disagreeing with. So mm-hmm. I've all, I have found through trial and error often that the way that you have conversations like this that are meaningful where you walk away friends – is when they come to you, is when people come and say, you know what, I don't know if I can buy that anymore. I don't know that it, it matters in the way that it used to. Um, the, and, and you say, yeah, yeah, I've been there for a while. You know, do you want, you know, it's, it's, it's all right. Uh, and, and so, again, kind of dealing with it pastorally. I will say one thing that complicates it is that um, – the early, the earliest followers of Jesus, they did care about th- whether things really did happen. I mean, Paul says, if, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we'd be pitied among all men. And Paul, and uh, you know, whatever somebody does with the resurrection, I at least historically am really convinced they believed it. They didn't right. think they were hallucinating. They didn't think it was a group, you know, a group hallucination. They didn't think that they didn't mean what we would say when we'd say, like, you know, my grandma's with me in spirit. That's not what they were talking about. Uh, they really believed it. Now, does that prove that it's true? No. No more than, you know, I mean, the people, you, you know, people die for things they believe in all the time. Uh, but, but they did think it, all right? And Paul, Paul believed in it. Uh, he believed it was something very different than what we often think of. But, you know, what I'm trying to say is the whole idea of asking the question, well, did this really happen? That has a place. The earliest followers of Jesus do care about that. They, what's difficult is they just they don't always care about it the way that we do. And they didn't what they did with their convictions was not always what we do. You know, I, it, it, it's it's in, it's absolutely infuriating to see people willing to to fight and lose Christian fellowship over whether you believe that you know, Jesus could read or write when you've got, you know, people starving to death in your city. Right. Uh, so, so it's, it's kind of, it's the thing that the reason it has to be confronted is because people confuse this with the gospel itself. 
I mean, the gospel is the proclamation that Jesus is Lord, right? Um, right. The gospel is not and never was. Inspiration means this particular thing. The gospel is not and never was. Jesus really did went go down to Egypt. You know that, that it, it's it's just not. The early church fought over a whole lot of things, but they didn't fight over those things. Well, that and that uh, question there, we wanted to talk about unity, and I'd love to then ask a question to end us on this idea of action. So I think this would probably be a really bad question to ask if I was in a camp of historical Jesus scholars, but I'm a pastor. So uh, I guess my question is, when when we look at some of these questions we've been talking about when we come to the text, I feel like even if I could say, well, here's the proof that here's exactly how it happened, it still doesn't really mean anything at that point, if it doesn't change the way I live, if it doesn't call me to any sort of action, like that's a really boring sermon. That's just, here's the proof that this happened, the end. Uh, so as we're, as we're coming to the gospels and these stories and asking these types of questions, what do you think is the process for uncovering what are these trying to say to us as far as the action and the response that it's calling us to? Well, it's it, it brings up a point that we talked about earlier. The text, the text isn't trying, it, with a few exceptions, the, the gospel texts are not trying to move you to a point of affirming that XYZ thing was hap, happened in space and time. They're explicitly trying to move you to the point to say that Jesus is this person. This is who Jesus is. That's what it's about. Is, is how people answer the question of who Jesus is. And that is what, you know, within the faith community, or at least within the Christian faith community, that is what should be the draw toward action. You know, it, because this whole dichotomy of only, only affirmations that X thing has historically happened is what should motivate you, that's just not true. You know, I know a whole bunch of people who believe that will take a hardline position on every event in the historical Jesus's life, and they're a holes, and nobody follows right. them, right? And I know people who don't believe any of. Them. I mean, one of the one of the best preachers I've ever heard was a was a historical Jesus scholar by the name of John Dominic Crossan, who would take you know compared to conservative Christians would take liberal perspectives, you know, almost every time. But he had a really strong sense of what it meant, you know, what what was you know. The whole idea that it had to have happened to be compelling, there's a ton in the Bible that we don't know whether it happened, and it's not exactly clear whether we're supposed to think that it happened. You know, did did Jonah really happen? It, I, how do you determine whether that, whether, I'm not talking about whether somebody's willing to believe that it happened. Yeah, that, that can be answered. But did the author of that text expect you to believe that it happened? There are a lot of texts in the Bible where you can say, the author expects you to believe that X, Y, Z thing happened. The authors of the Gospels really do want you to believe that there was a crucifixion and Jesus really did die, right? Did the author of Jonah really expect you to believe that Jonah actually happened in space and time? I don't know. I, I genuinely don't. I have no idea how to answer that question. Um, so, so how could we possibly, but can it still be compelling? Yes. I mean, to take a really simplistic example, when Nathan told David the parable of the lamb, 
Did that happen in space and time? No. But was it supposed to be compelling to David? Yeah. There's a whole lot. And I mean, what really conservative people hear when you say that is, well, you're just saying that it's just a story. And my response is, what do you mean just a story? It's a, st- it's a story that continues to move billions of people in the world today. Yep. Furthermore, it's not like this is unique to faith. You know, we, we started out this conversation talking about the Godfather. The God- there, are a lot of, there are a lot of things that didn't happen in space and time that I find compelling that I think, yeah, that, that moves me. So, uh, so I think one way, Chris, that, that I would answer your question is to say that, you know, particularly within the church community, to try to focus on the idea that what's compelling is not whether X, Y, Z thing happened, but who Jesus is, who Jesus was, you know, and people will say, well, you can't answer one without the other, and that's just nonsense. Yeah, you can. You don't want to, because that's how you were raised, but you can. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great. What do do you think of that? I mean, I have been saying for a long time like that you know one stories can build kingdoms and tear them down like stories unite hum- humanity and two that story was one of the primary vehicles through which Jesus taught and if Jesus is god which i think he is we somehow like am not are not willing to accept the idea that god would also through inspiring this, the Old Testament scriptures to be written, would also teach through parable. Like, we're not even willing to open the door to Jonah maybe being a parable, or some of the early chapters of Genesis not literally happening as history. But, well, God wouldn't teach us through parables that way, because that has to have really happened, or the Bible doesn't make any sense, and it, we should just throw it all out. Oh, but when, when God became flesh and dwelt among us of course he taught in parables because that's just how jesus was you know and it's like no one no one said the parable of the good samaritan or the prodigal son was just a story right exactly well there's what you're i I think unless i've misunderstood you observing too is there continues to be this remnant that the the real barometer of truth is whether i can stick it in a lab and repeat it you know whether i can prove that this actually really happened that, that this is and and again this is just fundamentally an egocentric apo- approach to truth. And furthermore, it gets applied in ways that are really suspicious. You know, that I really want, you know, that, that Christians will say, what really matters is that, you know, when the text says that Jesus, um, when the text says that Jesus went down to Egypt and came back as a child, that, if you say that didn't happen, you're, you're just not a real Christian. And you turn around and say, well, okay, Let's talk about in Judges the raping and mutilation of a, a Levite's concubine. Yeah. Did that really happen? Does that compel you? How does that move you? Or how about when God issues, uh, issues decrees that the Israelites commit genocide? Did that, how important is it that that really happened? And does that move you? You know, what's happening is that people take a handful of texts that become some type of litmus test. And it's yep. a litmus test to them because it was a litmus test in the context they grew up in often. And, um, and the, the, the fundamental problem here is that as far as the New Testament authors are concerned, that was never the litmus test that mattered. It wasn't even a litmus test in that way at all. Yep. And so somehow this, and there's, you know, 
I hate to get preachy, but there's a word for when you let something else get, uh, when you start worshiping something other than God himself, and that's idolatry. So when you start saying, my view of inspiration is actually the true, the true uh, litmus test of salvation. No, it's not. Where? Where? Show me that. Anywhere in the text. If you care about the text, show me anywhere in the text where that happens. You know, that's, it, it's idolatrous. In the, in the very least, it's bibliolatry, but it, it's idolatrous. I think for me, I would wonder if you think it would. It's fair to say though that maybe the pendulum is somewhere kind of in the middle, because at the same time, I guess my struggle with some of this is if if you're saying the point of the Gospels is how do you respond to Jesus? Who is Jesus? If we're called to look like Jesus and to follow Jesus, I mean, does it not kind of matter that we? actually have a semi-accurate picture of who Jesus was and what he cared about and what he did. And I guess my question is, is there is there a pendulum somewhere in the middle where it's like, well, it's also not just like the authors of the Gospels were just going rogue and being like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we wrote that Jesus did this? Wouldn't it be cool if we made up this story that maybe there's something in the middle there? Let me ask two questions for you because those are astute observations one is what if they were going rogue and making stuff up and and two you said um that there should be at least some semi-accurate information about here i can't remember how you phrased it but you used the word accuracy let's assume we say yes there needs to be some accurate information in there right who determines what counts as accurate I don't see know. What, see what see what's happening in the discussion is that one group of people is, ha, has an unstated, sometimes stated, but often unstated definition of what counts as accuracy. So I guess for me though, when I'm saying accuracy, and I already know what you're going to tell me, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Uh, when I'm talking about accuracy, I actually mean less. Did this happen the way everyone else did? So I would agree with you. Uh, the story in Matthew about all the these dead people coming back to life, that that probably didn't actually happen in space and time. But I do think that the author of Matthew is trying to communicate that this is the kind of new life and the kind of resurrection that Jesus has initiated through what has just happened. It's a claim for the first fruits of the resurrection. I mean, yeah. what, Paul, what Paul calls uh, the first fruits. And I, so my thing for accuracy would be more that like, that is actually true. That, uh, now can we ever actually know that? Well, I guess not. Like that's why it's called faith. But I guess that's more what I'm saying is that we, we actually have a picture of what the significance of Jesus is or like what Jesus cared about or the types of things that were important to Jesus is more what I mean by an accurate picture than that all of these events literally happened. What do you think I'm going to say? <laughs> well, I guess I uh, how do you how do you determine Actually, whether that's accurate? I mean, whether whether that really I mean, it, you, you, what you said is the is all that you can say. I mean, that that's that's a that's a that's a statement of faith. You know, Paul says we we know now in part, we'll then know in full. I mean, most of the early followers of Jesus 
they 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 knew that there were a lot of untied bows, you know, that, that, that everything wasn't wrapped up with a nice little bow on top. And, um, you know, that if, if the earliest accounts of uh, the first century Jesus followers are to be believed, uh, I think that the very earliest of his followers, the, the, the closest of his followers, would necessarily have concluded that he was not who they thought he was initially. That's why they're huddled in a room. That's why they don't believe initially. That's why in the literature it takes Jesus showing them his body and eating with them to, to, to convince them. is because they believe, I mean, the, the crucifixion was necessarily a statement that Jesus lost. It would have taken something powerful to make them change their tune on that. And so that's one way to get into the question about the resurrection is, is, is it, it, you know, I mean, I, the least we can say is that it would have taken an event like that uh, or, you know, yeah, could they have had some type of mass deception or something like that? Absolutely. That 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 could have happened. You know, how do we prove that one way or another? I don't there's no, there's no test to run on that. You don't. And, and similarly to the question that you're you're asking whether, you know, do we know, let's let's say that we shift saying, you know, within a community of faith, let's shift to saying what really matters is not whether X, Y, Z thing happened, but whether Jesus is who he says he is, right? This is where the people, our detractors, I'm going to say our, I mean, but they actually have a leg to stand on because can you, can you answer, can you answer that question without necessarily assuming the answer to some historical questions? Yeah, you, you, that's the case. You don't, I, I, don't, I don't think that for people who want to claim to be Christians, you don't escape answering some historical questions. It's not the case that it's just all story and all the truth is in story. What, what, is, what is the case is you have no access to it other than story. Right? There, there is no history without interpretation. And similarly, the, the statement about um, you know, let's if we if we shift from saying that what really matters not whether X Y Z happened, but whether Jesus is who they say who he he is, whether that is accurate. How do you measure that? You know, right, right. You, you, you measure it with your life. Is, is I mean, within the within the church community, that's that's the answer. But whether you know whether it's true, like you, you I mean. I, you have students who say, I mean, I have students who would say, well, I know it's true because I know it in my heart. I know what's inside of me. I know what happened to me, and you can't know it if you, if you didn't have it. I distinctly remember it was at Lincoln. I had a student, and I said, do you believe in alien abductions? And he said, no. And I said, well, why wouldn't you? Because that's the exact explanation that people who claim to have been abducted by aliens give. I know what happened to me. I know what I experienced, and you don't understand it because you haven't experienced it. And the same, the, the issue is that one of those things appears radical, and one of them appears normal because one of them's been normalized within a faith community. Actually, the other one's been normalized within a faith community as well. They're just a minority community, uh, uh, right. even more minority than Christians. But but the but but the thing is, you don't. Yes, you can appeal to that, and I'm not saying that it doesn't matter for anything, but but I am saying that how you answer the question of whether that's ultimately true, um, I don't 
I don't personally think, I mean, th- there are people who claim to have had, you know, experiences of God. Um, I would, I would love to have one. I've never had one, but, uh, you know, I'd be, I'm open to being just, you know, proven wrong on it. But, uh, you know, you, I just don't think for the vast majority of us, certainly in the Western world where we tend to be anti-supernatural, even within a community that came, claims to believe in the supernatural, I just don't know that you get answers on this side. What do you think? Does it, how does that sit with you, Chris? I mean, I can't. We want them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We want them. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how I would say it sits with me, but I agree. I, do, I don't have any pushback that I can give to that. Well, I mean, I think there, there are, I've had many students and, and people I've talked to, they really don't like that. But I can tell you when you talk to, a lot of times when we talk to broken people, particularly within the faith community, and they know that life isn't exactly like that anyway, that kind of resonates with them because they, they know that that uncertainty is just part of life in general. Uh, so I don't know why, it, it's a sham for us to think that uncertainty is not going to be part of the faith aspect of life as well. It always has been. I mean, Job yep. is in the canon for a reason. You know, uh, the uh, Ecclesiastes is in the canon for a reason. Lament Psalms are in the canon for a reason. There are many, th- those texts, what they proclaim very loudly is that part of the faith experience is not getting answers to the questions that you ask. Absolutely. Yeah, for a long time, I've been thinking how just this idea of certainty really bucks up against faith like you're like you're talking about and a lot of times we say like that faith and doubt are so at odds and like doubt is the opposite of faith um when really in a lot of ways i feel like our own scriptures point to us to the fact that actually a lot of our like heroes of the faith struggled with doubt immensely uh and it might point to the fact that maybe the opposite of faith is actually certainty um to some degree and you know and maybe some might say well isn't uncertainty and doubt the same thing and i feel like no uh there's and it's in defining what each of those things are that we um can start to help see how we're supposed to actually live out where we can still be a person of faith even though we're carrying some doubts through the way we live um and how maybe too much certainty can actually make us look more like Pharisees and end up hindering our witness or, or keeping us from actually living out our faith in a really real, authentic way because we just feel like we already have it all figured out. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I probably wouldn't use Pharisees in that way. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the, the, you know, Pharisees, if you look at what Josephus says about them, um, you know, that. Th- what you mean is uh, some of the negative portrayals of Jesus' enemies, I think. Uh, right. But but you know the but your point about doubt, uh, yeah, you know, just on a personal level, I don't trust people who don't say they don't doubt. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the 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 there are a lot of kind of apologists and stuff like that. They're a hundred percent certain this definitely happened, and I think you are. Like, like people, you, like in the ancient world, people didn't come back to life any more regularly than they, they do in our world. Um, you know, th- 
it was a crazy claiming that Jesus was resurrected. It was crazy then, and the people who proclaimed it knew it was crazy when they were proclaiming it. Um, so you know, I just I just had this conversation with a friend of mine who wanted to meet with me. He said, "I've I've always wondered really what you think about this." I said, "Of course, you know, it's it's a crazy statement. You know, I, if you don't think it was a crazy statement, I don't think you understand what they're actually claiming." Uh, so, um, it's only natural that you'd sit back and say, well, I have questions about some of these. I mean, if, if again, if somebody doesn't have any questions at all about that, I, I'd, I don't know. I wouldn't let them do my taxes. <laughs> I mean, for me, it just, <clears throat> I feel like the reality in which we find ourselves when it comes to the history of the Bible or the gospels, like actually might be the the best one because when I think about my life, the ways in which I've grown the most is when I've been thrown into a situation where like I was in the dark or didn't know exactly what all I was doing or I was doubtful and that opened up avenues for me to grow and test myself. Whereas I think about times where I was completely comfortable and knew everything, like that's how you become bored and stagnant. And maybe this is the better option. I don't know. Well, uh, you know, um, whether it's better or not, uh, you have you have to face the reality of right. the text that the text that we have, not the text that you want it to be. Uh, yep. And that's the thing that I think that bothers me the most is when people, um, you know, this is probably the 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 Chris Keith who grew up in a conservative context and and little pieces of that never left. I, I really don't like people. I like it when people twist the text to make it say something that it doesn't say. And the worst perpetrators of this are people who often say they care about the text most loudly, uh, you know, because it, they really, really want the text to align with exactly what they say. So you get people saying stuff like, well, the text doesn't have any contradictions in it. Well, then you're not really reading the text. It, 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 you can you can shout from the rooftops that you really care about the Bible, but if if you're not willing to actually deal with the text that, from your perspective, God gave us, if it was good enough for Him, why is it not good enough for you? You know, uh, so so one of the things that I think that's really necessary is to say, uh, you know, what the, the the text that we have is the one that not only we have to deal with, but the one that we get to deal with. Yeah, that's great. When I worked with Chris uh, at a couple of different churches, anytime it was just us in a room, this is pretty much where the conversation went for, for like two or three hours. Well, you know, there there is a gen- there's most definitely a generational shift in approaches to the Bible with, within the Christian community, within the conservative. What we're really talking about is white white Christian community, um, and the and the the, comf- the the comforting or encouraging thing for me as somebody who interprets the Bible for a living is that it's it's people that have become a lot more comfortable with acknowledging that you know it. Quite clearly, it lo and behold, it didn't actually fall out of the sky, you know. And so, right. what does that actually look like? And a lot of times, I have to tell people, you know, they're they're really they they found out that you know they're these explicit contradictions or something, and they're really disheartened. And it's kind of like, look, they've been there for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and people knew that they were there. You know, what's changed is what you learned. The text has not changed at all. Well, I mean, the, the text obviously changed over time, but the, but my point is, you know, that it it was it was always like that. Uh, so um, I think that there's there's most definitely something happening um, uh, in terms of uh, 
people becoming more and more comfortable with less with less uh, rigorous historically positive positivist views of of the biblical text. Well, all those conversations, Andrew, are mostly his fault. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, I think that I think that the people who really have trouble and want to avoid these conversations need to ask themselves very, very seriously whether they actually care about the text. Uh, you know, and that, that's, that's the difficult thing. And that's why, you know, you asked the question earlier about unity and grace, Chris. And I think the hard reality is that sometimes it's not there to be had. You know, some people don't, if, if, if someone's coming from a perspective that all that really matters is whether you agree with me on X thing, and don't get me wrong, people can be sticklers and jerks on both sides of this. It's not like, it's not like there's, it, you know, one of them has the market. Um, but it was the hard reality that I faced, Chris, you know, when, when, when I stopped teaching there, was that that, bat, that battle was not going to be won. I was never going to win those people over to seeing that I actually did care about the text. I actually did care about Jesus. Um, they were playing through their framework, and they weren't interested in hearing anything else. And sometimes the most gracious thing that you can do for the sake of unity, whether it's with believers or non-believers, is just to walk away and say, I don't need you to affirm what I think in order for me to have a, a, a perfectly healthy conscience about why I think it. Uh, you know, which is a really nice way of saying I really don't care what you think. But, but... But there is a proper way to say that. You know, I, I don't need you to affirm what I think in order for us to both be, say, brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, if you're upset about it, that's your problem. I, it, it's okay. Yep. Well, if, uh, if people want to find more of your work, where can they go? Oh, they'll be bored to death. Uh <laughs> It's it's all on Amazon, or they could go to my faculty page, or they could just send me an email. What are you uh, working on? Anything new coming up? I have a I have a book going to Oxford University Press here. Uh, hopefully, before this week is out, um, which I realize we only have two more days in this week. So, um, but uh, it's on the it's called the Gospel as Manuscript. It's on the the role that the the Jesus tradition as material artifact played, specifically in two phenomena. Uh, the first is the competitive, what I call the competitive textualization of the Jesus tradition, and then the second one is uh, on the public reading of the Gospels in early Christian assemblies, early Christ Christ assemblies. Uh, the and then after that, I have a book with a uh, Yale University Press on the role of the Gospel of John in the quest for the historical Jesus. So back to the historical Jesus after that. Uh, considering the conversation that we've had today, are there any other like uh, particularly maybe more accessible resources you would recommend for people that want to dive more into what we've been talking about today? Yeah. Uh, in terms of what I've written, I, I do have uh, Jesus Against the Scribal Elite uh, is probably the most accessible book that I've written. It, it's written as almost a textbook, um, and to and it should be accessible to someone who's a, a lay reader, but an interested lay reader. Um, it's it's written in a way that it also would bore a lot of lay readers to death, 
Uh, but it's about um, the question that it asks is basically why? How did Jesus become important in the first place? In other words, you know, scholars tend to just assume that Jesus had these controversies with other teachers, and this book deals with the question of why did they have a problem with Jesus? Like, why didn't they just dismiss him and say, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about? Why did they care what he thought about in the first place? Um, and it deals it, it deals with that. And I, I end up arguing actually that. Um, that you know, a, a lot of scholars doubt whether Jesus, whether these controversies between Jesus and other Jewish teachers ever happened. I actually think there's a very strong case to be made that they did, um, and that that's the and that the the main reason was that they regarded him kind of as an illegitimate teacher, that he he was out of his league, and they were trying to show him up, and and so there was just you know constant kind of bashing heads uh, over whether he actually had the authority to be saying the kinds of things that he was saying. So um, that's that's probably the most accessible uh, thing that, that people would um, would be able to get their hands on. Jesus against the scribal elite. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks so much for taking time to chat with us. We appreciate it. Well, thank you guys, and thanks for the ministry that you're doing with this podcast, and good luck with the rest of your conversations, and uh, tell Larry Hurtado hello from me. Will do. Yeah, thank thanks so for much. having me on, guys. Thanks. I really appreciate it. It's nice to meet awesome. you again. Chris, it's good to see you again. You too. Thanks. All right. Bye. Well, you just got done listening to the Better Questions podcast, otherwise known as Chris sucking up to his teacher. <laughs> so if you want to see more of that, click subscribe below or follow us on our Facebook page. Join us on Patreon. Yeah, and if you like the episode, a great way to get more people to listen and watch is to just share the video on any social media or on Facebook is the more you share that and the more ears and eyes get on there. And we have upgraded to video. So next, LaserDisc. Woo! Be on the lookout for that. Thanks so much. And uh, as always, keep asking better questions that call you to action and that bring unity to all perspectives.